one step in this long progress. It's been a team effort by us all the way. We're but part of the whole team that's worked so hard. The shuttle era will come to an end. But they won't stop inspiring, and they won't stop being a part of the fabric of America. We choose to go to the moon. and welcome everybody to another episode of the Talking Space Podcast. This is Talking Space episode 1303 for the week of Monday, May 3rd, 2021. I'm Sawyer Rosenstein and joining me tonight is Gene McCulka. Welcome, Gene. May the 4th be with you, sir. Same to you as well. And welcome as well, Dr. Kat Robison. Pleasure to be here. Pleasure to have you with us. Mark is unable to join us for this episode. Sorry, Mark, but uh, we look forward to having you back again with us very, very soon. So let's kick things off here with Crew Spaceflight. We've got two missions to discuss, Crew 1 and, appropriately, Crew 2. Uh, so we will begin with the most recent to this recording date, and that is the return of four astronauts from the International Space Station on the longest U.S. space flight since Skylab era. And that was the return of the Crew Dragon Resilience, uh, carrying Mike Hopkins, Victor Glover, Shannon Walker, and JAXA astronaut Soichi Noguchi. The four undocked from the International Space Station on May 2nd and splashed down a short time later at 2.56 a.m. Eastern Time. The undocking is May 2nd UTC, I should add, so May 1st Eastern Time, if you're keeping track. Uh, It was recovered out in the Gulf of Mexico, right near Pensacola, Florida, which is just off of the panhandle. Uh, The crew was recovered safely. Within about 45 to 50 minutes of splashing down, they were already on the boat, uh, including a little dance from Mike Hopkins on the boat as he (laughs) stepped out, uh, and the crew returning safely. This, uh, Also marking the largest number of people who have ever returned in a single capsule flight. It also marked only the second ever U.S. uh, capsule splashdown night landing. The first one being Apollo 8 back in 1968. So a lot of history plus the end of the first operational flight of the commercial crew program. Yes, Sawyer, this was a a six-hour flight. Operation, if I recall, from from the moment they detached uh, the the uh, Crew Dragon Resilience detached itself from the uh, the International Space Station, and everything went like clockwork. Resilience knew exactly where to go. She her, her onboard computers were fully in charge of this. That was the that's that's something that. Uh, I'm still trying to you know, wrap your head around that that, that these vehicles uh, are just completely autonomous and are in the driver's seat. Of course, the crew could take over at any time, but pretty much the, the you know the crew just kind of monitors things and and you know 
make sure things are, are moving along um, inside the spacecraft at the time that they're supposed to. Um, so, uh, you know, it, it still just, just blows my mind here. Indeed, this was this, a lot of history here, too. Um, as you mentioned, uh, it one record goes all the way back to 1968 with uh, a night landing, and this was only, you know, the second uh, splashdown, if you will, for this vehicle, and they were going to pull this off uh, at night, so it was extraordinarily risky, so you want to go ahead and make sure that you know, the weather was good and, and the, the seas were good. And from what I heard, um, you know, the seas were like glass out there. Um, and uh, uh, the wind was only about a speed, if I recall, of about three knots. So it was was a pretty good uh, weather day to come home. Um, they did not have the, shall we say, the commotion that uh, the uh, greeted the uh, uh, the DM2 astronauts when they returned. Uh, there were no you know issues with any pleasure craft in the area. Uh, that was something that Steve Stitch had pointed out, I believe, in the press conference um, after the, the post splashdown press conference that they had uh, worked with the U.S. Coast Guard and a few other authorities to make sure that that did not happen. And uh, lo and behold, they, uh, th that all worked. I have a feeling that the hour um, that uh, uh, Resilience came home to had a lot to do with it. Um, let me see, what else? Uh, but, but this was, as you pointed out, the first, quote, operational, close quote. And I want to put those words in caution because um, Kathy Leaders, uh, during uh, one of the press conferences, I believe it was the uh, uh, pre-launch press conference for uh, for for crew two um, basically said that you know no way in 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 uh, you know in, in in God's green earth are we looking at this being op an operational um, an operational system. We're still learning on how how this thing works. We're still learning about the machines. We're still learning ourselves about our own procedures, what needs to be refined, and so on and so forth. So, um, we're, we're, and that kind of made me feel pretty good because if you recall during the shuttle days after four missions, they declared the, the thing operational. And I think we've, we've kind of learned from that and saying that, you know, nothing is really, really intrinsically operational and hearing Kathy leaders say that it made me feel pretty good. Um, but, uh, one of the other things I'll point out too, um, from, from the, the processes. Um, I know that this particular crew dragon that came home with crew one, um, the, uh, the resilience spacecraft, I believe that one is, is scheduled and, and you guys can correct me if I'm wrong. That one's scheduled for the inspiration four mission next. If, that if is correct mistaken. of which right. uh, they will be modifying the top of it where, they have a nose cone that opens and closes currently right now to protect the uh, docking mechanism that will now include a sort of mini cupola, according to the latest designs from SpaceX. Right. Now, because I think it's because they're going to throw that on there, um, there was a, a third crew dragon in the pipeline. 
And I believe that third crew dragon is actually going to be the one that's going to be used for the crew three exchange. So we're going to see a new new uh, crew dragon for crew three. Resilience will not be the spacecraft that will be used for the crew three exchange coming up. I believe that's in October. So I found that kind of interesting. That was something that uh, Steve Stitch had, had had NASA Steve Stitch, Stitch had mentioned. Uh, during the uh, the the post splashdown press conference, and I don't think I think that kind of just came and went. Not a lot of press was was uh, was was uh, uh, not a lot of press paid attention to that that particular bit of news. And so um, you know, there you have it. Uh, that that resilience will not be the spacecraft that will be going back to the ISS for uh, in that uh, in that crew exchange increment um if i can the one thing that really surprised me the most about uh crew one just watching the landing of it was the camera views that we got we could see Mm -hmm. the draco thrusters firing out the top of the uh capsule from a camera inside the capsule where you could then see them looking at the monitors looking at the draco thrusters firing for the deorbit burn for 16 minutes and on top of that we still had camera views from the international space station pretty much all the way through including into the start of as it's called entry interface when it hits the atmosphere i have to say i loved some of my favorite views uh the whole evening were the views from the iss just because it was dragon against a field of stars which is really beautiful so I, I appreciated seeing that. And then, of, of course, it's just great to have redundancy and, and travel to the space station, you know, even though it's not, you know, redundancy in the terms of NASA only has one capsule right now. You know, now we have Dragon and Soyuz, and hopefully soon we're going to have um, an additional uh uh, path to to uh, the space station come come forward, and it's just excellent to see to see that happen and to see redundancy and and um, to see re- regularity with flights to the space station sort of returning, uh, not only with with having more than just Soyuz, but with returning to more normal operations. Um, of course, with COVID protections, but seeing um, seeing that happen, so it's just really it's fantastic to see the crew um, be able to go through a whole mission and splash down safely. Yeah, agree, Kat. I mean, uh, the cameras from the International Space Station, we actually even saw the, the trunk of the of the Crew Dragon detach, and you can actually see the two, you know, okay, fine, they were, they were large, bright dots on the screen, but you can actually see the drag the the dragon capsule kind of part ways with with the trunk and that was the first time i believe we saw that so it was it was kind of kind of neat watching the coverage on on that so uh so kudos to to nasa nasa television for uh for hanging there with us and 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 letting us see all of that that was like the first time i i believe we, we saw that so bravo nasa and spacex it was a joint webcast so we have to give credit to both of them yeah, agreed sir thank you So uh, we had the successful uh, return of Crew-1, and that was only possible because they had their replacement crew launch aboard Crew-2. 
and Crew 2 successfully launched in the early morning hours of April 23rd at 5.49 a.m. Eastern Time, that's 9.49 GMT slash UTC, uh, and that was the reflight of the capsule Endeavor. I almost said Space Shuttle Endeavor, although they do share a name. This is the same capsule that first flew the Demo 2 mission with Doug Hurley and Bob Behnken. Uh, They have made some upgrades to it since then, though, according to SpaceX, which allowed them greater wind tolerance uh, when it came to launch commit criteria. Basically, it could be windier and they could still launch. Uh, And it didn't matter because they launched right on time, bringing Shane Kimbrough, Megan MacArthur, ESA astronaut Thomas Pesquet, and JAXA astronaut Aki Hoshide up to the International Space Station docking about 23 hours later and making a happy crew of 11 people for about a week on the ISS. Yeah, Sawyer, it was, again, it was another another uh, list of firsts. It was the first reuse of a, of a Crew Dragon capsule. It was the first time you had two dragons uh, attached to the International Space Station. I'm sure it will not be the last. Um, you'll... We had uh, the first time an ESA astronaut, Thomas Pesquet, um, on board the uh, the uh, Crew Dragon, and we had for the very first time a bit of a handoff between, I believe, uh, two Japanese astronauts. So that too, I think, uh, was was kind of neat, and it it showed to the international component of the International Space Station, um, and I believe Aki Hoshide is now the commander of this particular expedition. So I think that somebody out there, some bright person is going to check me on that one, but I think this is the first time we had uh, we had a uh, uh, Japanese commander on, on the ISS, I believe. I may not um, be a smart person, but you are correct. <laughs> yes, thank you. Well, <laughs> thank you, Sawyer. One thing I liked about this launch is that um, NASA astronaut Megan MacArthur actually sat in the same seat that her husband, Bob Behnken, did during the first crew flight. So that was sort of a, you know, you don't often get these sorts of fun family stories that go along with launches. But I thought that that was um, that was a really nice tidbit and fun sort of fact about about the flight. Yeah, Kat, could you imagine imagine the kids? you know, of that family. Here they are, you know, they, they were they were bidding um dad, you know, a, a good trip to the International Space Station um just a few short months ago. Um and he's come back and, and now here he is now here's uh Bob Bankin on on the opposite side of, of where, you know, he was uh, bidding his his uh, his wife goodbye, and 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 here are the kids, you know, saying good luck, mom. Um, I'm sure too that there was a lot of conversations. You know, I'd love to be a fly on that wall. Uh, you know, talking about what to expect, and you know, I'm sure Bob Banken gave uh, uh, Megan uh, MacArthur a lot of uh, a lot of uh, you know insight into what to expect. And and so on. I mean, I'm sure you know everybody got a debrief, but I'm sure she got a little bit more inside baseball than than the other uh, than the other crewmates did because you know 
they, they, you know, probably, you know, I can, I can hear the, the conversation maybe on, you know, on Sundays and on breakfast and so on and, and all of that, just saying, you know, all right, just watch for this and this, that, and the other thing. So it was, you know, it was kind of cool, but could you imagine being, being one of the kids in that family? Wow. I mean, they'll have, they'll have a lot of stories to tell for the rest of their lives. Or maybe annoyed with their parents always away. <laughs> Very true. Like, thanks for another space story, parents. <laughs> Remember that time I was in space? Which one of you? <laughs> yeah, right. I should also point out there is another first that we haven't mentioned yet, and that was the first time that astronauts have flown on a previously flown Falcon 9 booster. Yes, that's true. This was the exact same booster that launched the Crew-1 mission back in November. And uh, we had the audio for you of that booster back in November. And uh, guess what? We've got the audio of that same booster on a different mission uh, carrying Crew-2. So uh, without further ado, let me play the audio first, and then I'll make some comments about what it was like being at this launch, because this one was special. So uh, go ahead and give this a listen. Now, I, I was talking with Gene about this after the launch when I was uh, sending him the raw audio of that. And uh, it's very interesting, this one, because normally it's one loud, continuous roar. And you can compare it to any of the launches that we've covered on this show before. This one, it kind of sounded like it was almost like a sine wave. Like, uh, it was loud and then quiet, and then loud and then quiet, and then loud and then quiet. It was very interesting. I don't know... It, almost sounded like it was kind of chugging along but it, it did the exact opposite if you're watching it yeah i was going to ask if if the wind was playing tricks with you or in any way shape or form um, that is possible it was it was quite breezy and again i don't know if they didn't do the upgrades to the capsule and the rocket and all that if they would have been able to actually lift off because it was a little on the breezy borderline windy side yeah, that that was one of the things I, I I immediately thought it must have been the wind kind of carrying the sound to and fro, and uh, um, your mic just was was lucky enough, if you will, to catch that you know peculiar you know, sine wave action of that. That's what I thought too. I mean, it was this really is, really. <laughs> this is where we really miss having Cassie on the call and having a sound engineer to give us all that. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I would thank you. I, 
Oh, Cassie, if you're listening, <laughs> drop us an MP, drop us an MP3, and 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 let us know because you know I'd I'd love to get your insight on this. And in terms of location, this was directly on the water, as in where we were. There was not much room between the road and the water. It was uh, basically the nose of my car was up against the road, and my trunk was right on the edge of the water. So that's how much room we had to work with. So there really was no option but to get it very close to the water, which I think may have also played a part in it as well. And, you know, you can kind of hear as it goes on the breeze and the waves lapping and all of that towards the very end of it as the rocket sound fades out. And the one thing that this launch can't convey with sound is the visuals. This one, the launch itself is always gorgeous. I mean, those never get old, ever. I have to be honest. That was my 25th launch, and it has not gotten old any of those times. But what was amazing was right after separation, there is an effect that is known in the space community. I don't know if it's an official term or not, but we refer to it as the jellyfish effect because it kind of looks like you get a dome like the top of a jellyfish, and then the wiggling kind of of the exhaust looks a little bit like the tentacles. That typically only happens right before sunrise. Or in this case, right before astronomical sunrise. So basically, we still had about 30 minutes until the sun fully rose in Florida right at the Cape there. But... As it went high enough in altitude, it was at the point where the sun was still hitting it. So you could see that sort of dome-like effect uh, as a result of the engines firing. And then on top of that, it was pretty cool that morning. It was in the mid-50s Fahrenheit. I apologize, I don't know the exact Celsius conversion. It was in the mid to upper 50s Fahrenheit. And... It was a little chilly, and imagine higher altitudes, it's going to be even cooler. So when the first stage separated and did its little turnaround to reorient itself for landing on the barge out in the ocean, which it successfully did, you could see the sort of thruster exhaust, for lack of a better word, freezing in the upper atmosphere, crystallizing. So you could see all of the jet thrusts from the thrusters on the first stage booster. And then as they hit the atmosphere, they would kind of wiggle and wave. And it was one of the most unique experiences. I'll be posting pictures of it in the show notes. It does a better job showing it than I can explain. But there's something about just literally seeing the pulses on that first stage and then see those pulses ripple like waves on water as you're seeing it inside this giant dome of sort of a jellyfish type cloud. Hopefully that makes any sense. I'm looking forward to seeing those photographs juxtaposed on, on with the show notes because hearing your explanation, I think, is, is really going to provide not only me but anybody else listening to your explanation a lot of insight, Sawyer. So I, I appreciate that very, very much, and I'm looking forward to seeing the photography. If you, anybody is wondering, by the way, I just looked it up, um, you know, say it's about 52 degrees Fahrenheit, that would be about 11 celsius so if anybody's just kind of wondering about that thank you i appreciate that and i'm sure no our international worries. audience appreciates as well 
no worries. You know, we, we, you know, ugly Americans, we have to go ahead and, and make sure that we, we make sure that uh, the rest of us understand what we ugly Americans are talking about like that. So. <laughs> the world doesn't speak freedom units. <laughs> I am joking. Not, of course, I am joking. <laughs> I have never heard that before. <laughs> but before we wrap this up, I do want to give a special thank you once again to the 45th Space Wing as part of uh, the U.S. Space Force. Uh, they were fantastic in accommodating Talking Space at this launch uh, when we were unable to get in through NASA as a result of COVID-19 restrictions. So, again, a huge thank you to everyone over there at the 45th, to Heather and the team over there that helped get Talking Space out and be able to bring the launch audio and the experience to you. Bravo. And, uh, again, thank you, uh, 45th Space Wing, and uh, for, for making sure that we had uh, at least one set of boots on the ground that could go ahead and bring back some good audio and some good photography for uh the talking space listeners and sawyer thank you for your work down there i know you uh you, you put in like yeoman's hours down there and uh i really do appreciate uh, everything you did did for us down there wow 25 launches dude yeah oh no Holy i have wow. to go to cape canaveral to watch a rocket launch especially one with people on it oh twist my arm oh no <laughs> For shame, how dare I have to. <laughs> I always say, the day that that does not get old, or the day that I am bored of a launch, is the day that either something is very wrong with me, or I am dead. So, yeah, I, I'm, <laughs> don't expect I'm, either of those anytime soon. I miss being down there, Sawyer, I'll tell you. Um, and uh, as uh, somebody reminded me um, just, you know, a couple of uh, couple of weeks ago, uh, of uh, the... Uh, SDS-134 group, and and uh, I still remember Mark and I being down there for that, so, and, and Mark putting up with me, because um, I was sort of like the, the rookie there. That was my first, uh, that was my first time uh, covering a launch as a, as a member of accredited press, and here we were getting eaten alive by the Florida uh, Air Force, uh, <laughs> watching the RSS retract, and Mark, you know, you, you're a gem. That's all I'm going to say. Anyway, uh, that is not the only launch related to a space station. We do have to mention uh, that there was another launch in uh, April that was on April 29th, 2021. And that was the launch of Tian Hei, uh, which is the first piece of the new Chinese space station. Uh, this will be uh, the Tiangong Space Station. Uh, it successfully launched from Wenxian, which is along the coast of China, and uh, that is their first module in a multi-module space station. So we've had Tiangong 1 and Tiangong 2 before, but this those were both tests leading to this, and they successfully launched on a Long March 5B, and uh, while the first main part of the rocket splashed down in the ocean and not near any population as with other launch sites that China has. It doesn't mean that the public is not out of danger from possible falling space debris from this rocket. This is not the first time that we, we've had some concern regarding um, uncontrolled deorbits, whether from space stations. I mean, you may all famously remember that uh, when Skylab deorbited parts of that 
um, debris hit Western Australia, and there's a town here that actually very famously uh, gave NASA a littering fine. Uh, <laughs> so this isn't the first time something like this has happened. However, with this, um, there was definitely international sort of condemnation within the space community um, to have such a large uh, rocket body uh, with an uncontrolled deorbit, and there was a lot of uh, speculation that uh, software would be added enable uh, that would enable it to make a, a deorbit burn to control where it would enter. Because of that uh, condemnation they received, there was uh, there was talk that there would be uh, that added to future flights, um, and that hasn't been added. So I, I certainly expect there to be, um, you know, there already has been some, but I expect there to be. Uh, talks about this and and you know this could be um, a threat to land um, obviously the earth is mostly covered by by water so uh, just probability wise it is likely that this will deorbit and land in an uninhabited area but you know that's not a guarantee by any any stretch of the imagination it absolutely could go over um populated areas and it absolutely could be a danger to people and so there certainly is a conversation about the effect of things like this and there will certainly be a conversation especially at the international level about what do we do to ensure that this is not a regular occurrence coming out of not only china's space program but any space program because it is it is reckless um to have something this large coming back into our atmosphere uncontrolled. Yeah, Kat, I mean, th this thing is, is what, about 21 tons? And I believe the footprint of, you know, any type of land masses, and again, this is something that, you know, we I, I did point out as well, that we're kind of lucky in that uh, a lot of our planet is mostly water. But, the, the I mean, this thing has the possibility of showering some sort of debris uh, in a path anywhere between, you know, as far south as New Zealand and as far north as here in the New York area. So uh, it's, it's not without, uh, you know, without some concern. Um, and, yeah, I was wondering, too, if there, if do you see, you know, since, since you kind of have your, your finger on the pulse more than, anybody in in the uh on the program here do you see any kind of you know what what can be done in the future to kind of uh penalize a bad actor like this in in not having you know the ability to bring down something that large in a responsible manner yes yeah, so there's um certainly arguments to be made uh for for what can be done ultimately signatories to the Outer Space Treaty have the responsibility to protect um, and to ensure that the way that they operate in space is a um, safe and doesn't cause harm to other. And that just that doesn't that's not just the Outer Space Treaty. There are many international treaties between countries, many norms and rules of of how um, we carry out national activities, whether that's in the United States, it's in Russia, Zimbabwe, China, India, doesn't matter where you are. There are an agreed upon set of rules and norms um, in which you operate in international space, whether that's 
you know, outer space, international waters. Um, and there's always some back and forth and, and, you know, different nations at different times for different reasons will push against those norms and those um, regulations and those treaties. This is something that has been happening and we do not have the regulatory framework that has enough teeth to be able to do anything that would punish China, you know, for, for lack of a better term, for these unsafe, um, you know, and not only unsafe but avoidable actions in space. Um, and this, of course, means nothing of the fact, I mean, I'm sure we, we've talked about on the show before that, that um, China does occasionally launch over inhabited villages, and there have been incidents that have, that have arisen from, um, from that practice. There's been a bit of recklessness in regards to um, launching and landing safety or reentry safety uh, for some time with China, and there just doesn't exist the the framework for there to be anything done about it. If this this sort of hit something, cause you know property damage, you know, and God forbid anything anything worse than that, you know, you may see sort of an international outcry that that forces China's hand. And even now what's happening may may sort of say like, you know, this is this is not an acceptable thing. It's sort of, you know, relying on a a pressure system. Like who has the power and ability to pressure? So um, you know, with the space station, Russia is expected to partner and to do some things with them. And Russia is working closely with China's space. So perhaps here, um, it may not be an international regulatory framework that has that has the ability to like impose sanctions or anything. It may be pressure from partners. Unfortunately, like I, re- I really just don't have a better answer because you know we have we have international laws, we have international re- regulations, but those international laws and regulations depend on sort of like consent to be governed and and you know as happens with every country this is not just a china problem there are times when um when countries just don't consent to be governed i mean we see this conversation happen a lot within the commercial space era right are the commercial space programs especially in terms of launching and having habitation on mars are those even in line with the outer space treaty right um, so this is not like a new conversation. We've been having these conversations for a long time, but certainly we're at the point now with the technology available that there is not an excuse to have a rocket body of this size deorbited without some thought and ability to control where that, that deorbit takes place to ensure that it's not a threat um, to people here on Earth. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm just recalling what NASA did for for Skylab. First, they they knew they had a problem. Skylab was still was still kind of responsive. They played around with it during the the reentry phase to see if they could they could really really bring it down out of a a populated area. And unfortunately, you know, well, Australia, you know, where you are now was uh was uh, right in its uh, its sights and unfortunately there was a uh an impact of some of the uh some of the debris there and and nasa of course sent you know a note saying we regret and came over and and helped kind of clean up the mess if you know what do you think is i'm just gonna just throw a hypothetical out there say if it does hit a landmass, you know hopefully it doesn't what do you think the um, 
the response of, uh, of, of the PRC is going to be? Honestly, I think it depends on what landmass it hits, right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I hate to say that, but, you know, some governments have more power than others to demand a response and a change. If it hits, you know, the United States, if it hits Australia, if it hits New Zealand, you know, if it hits Russia, right? That's going to be in engender a much different response and say it hits somewhere sub-Saharan Africa, right? Or it hits in South America. It's it's just going to, you know, unfortunately, it's just going to engender a different response depending on, on what happens. Um, but hopefully there will be enough pressure um, from China's partners that this is not something that happens again. Chinese politics are unique, and I am by in no means an expert on this. So, you know, <laughs> take everything that I say with a grain of, of salt. But, you know, sort of there, there is a uh, concept within China of saving face. Um, and it's this where, you know, you don't bring shame upon your country. You don't bring shame upon your family, things like this. And it's a very like deep cultural concept. So I think that if it were to hit something and, and cause any sort of damage, even if it were perhaps in one of these um, uh, less powerful nations in terms of political power, uh, that could sort of engender a response saying that, you know, you need to take responsibility. I would expect there to be, you know, perhaps a job loss, you know, some someone made an example of. Even so, that doesn't guarantee that there will be change. Um, so it's almost a wait and see to see if China is going to keep, you know, just doing this and rolling the dice and playing a game of rocket roulette. Uh, and hopefully that's not the case because it's not safe and it's certainly no excuse for it in, in this day and age for us to um, to do this. And also anytime that you have like an uncontrolled thing like this, you know, yes, there's danger on Earth, but also you know, we talk about this problem with space debris and, the, and, and how crowded low Earth orbit has gotten. Now, these rockets obviously are at a, at a lower orbit with that, but it just brings up these problems that when when we sort of just put things in space and don't have a way to control how they reenter, we don't have a way to control how their orbits decay, we don't have control over this, you know, it could potentially be a ripple effect problem. Um, so this this is, you know, an incident that while deals with just, you know, one issue on the surface really touches a lot of international governance issues. Um, ESA just recently had a space debris conference to talk about, you know, how do you handle these problems of defunct um, and crowded orbits, you know, so defunct uh, hardware in space and crowded orbits and, you know, sort of launches, especially of mega constellations that, that, um, there's no international working together to see like where are things going to be. Um, so this is just, you know, one, one issue that highlights a larger problem in terms of international space governance, which is, you know, we have a lot of regulations, we have a lot of agreed upon norms, but none of these, these regulations or norms really have a lot of teeth to enforce what they're saying. Um, so any, any country that can access space can make the decision for themselves or not, on how safe and how regulated that access will be and how much they'll cooperate with other spacefaring nations. Oh, but dear me, I mean, it, it's just like that old Tom Lehrer song, you know, when, when the rockets go up, who cares where they come down? That's not my department. It's just, it's just you know, I, I don't want to be flippant, but it just sounds to me that 
um, we've we've got to go ahead and 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 really clean up our act when it comes to um, you know just just being uh, good you know good stewards not only of low earth orbit but also of good you know good international behavior and uh, yeah I mean you really space flight. Yeah, you really hit the the head on the nail. There's um, been a lot of conversations going on within sort of the academic community of space policy and law, where we talk about how we reached the inflection point with climate change, you know, 50 years ago, perhaps even further, where we really needed to make concentrated regulatory efforts to ensure that we weren't doing damage to to our spaceship Earth, right? Um, we're at that inflection point now with space policy and how we use space and how we maintain access to space and, you know, maintain use. Uh, a lot of things, and we've talked about this before with mega constellations on, on the show, that, um, you know, that has real impacts for ground-based astronomy. It also has real impacts for communities, indigenous communities who um, use the skies for, for cultural purposes as well. Um uh, Regulations also have impact on, uh, you know, how we can access and what we can put up and, and, and safety of astronauts. You know, the International Space Station is always dealing with space debris. Um, this launch, right, that, that had recently had a space debris um, brush where they had to, to, you know, strap back in and put their suits back on because the space debris came within a, a certain uh, distance of the capsule. So these are these are questions, you know, that, that we're dealing with right now. And, um, you know, we're at that inflection point that, that we need to take time to, to think through and really consider what is it that we want the future of space to look like and who do we want making the decisions about what this future of space looks like. In, indeed. And, and just to uh, put some uh, a little further anecdote on the uh, on the crew, too. Ascent because I remember the the call came out and and the the deal was all right everybody get in into your hard suits we think we have a debris issue um, that debris issue was was kind of a false alarm but it it still underscores the need that you know we've really got to be better stewards of of low Earth orbit or low Earth orbit is just going to be completely unusable. And, you know, we're not going to be able to get out of it because there's just so much, you know, stuff in our way if we launch something. So, uh, you know, we, we've really got to be better stewards of that. We've really got to got to uh, to uh, to be be better, you know, at at watching ourselves. And, and Kat, I think you're right. I think this is where uh, space policy is really going to shine. And I think this is where, you know, folks like you are going to be able to go ahead in the future and make a heck of a lot of difference um in in that so you know I'm, I'm looking really really forward to to watching watching what what you do personally and and what watching what uh what others do in this area i mean space debris is something that we've mentioned you know sawyer you can attest to we've been talking about that topic now since what 2011 and uh um you know we'll continue to to talk about it because i still think it's a it's a key key problem and and this 21-ton uh, booster that is, you know, Lord knows where it's going to land. I mean, that that again is is not is not a good thing. And uh, you know, again, I think countries uh, that do loft uh, boosters into 
into into space should have a plausible and and good solid um, you know solid method of bringing those things home in a uh, responsible manner. So you know again, this is going to be something we're going to be watching uh, on this on this program, and uh, we'll you know I'm not saying that everybody go out and find your your Skylab hard hat from many years ago and start wearing it, but. Um, this is still something that, uh, that, that, you know, it, it might be worth watching if, uh, uh, you're anywhere in that footprint and that footprint is, is rather large right now. So, um, we'll be, uh, we'll be watching the story as it unfolds. Um, one other thing I'm, I'm going to mention, um, on the, uh, the lofting of the Chinese space station, actually two things. One, a lot of people were trying to compare it to the International Space Station. Um, I believe the uh, end configuration is going to be only about one-fifth the volume of the ISS. So the ISS is still going to be the, the larger of the, uh, of the facilities. Um, one of the, uh, the, in fact, one of the commentators basically said, you know, what would happen if, if you know, the ISS goes down and, and heck, you know, the China's, China's, China's is the only one there. Well, that's extraordinarily unlikely thanks to, uh, two players, uh, Axum Space, which plans to hook up, uh, two, a, a group of modules actually onto the International Space Station and then become a, after the, uh, the program has ended, become a free flyer of itself and, uh, Sierra Nevada Space, uh, which is uh, sending up a group of expandable modules on its own and hopefully will have its Dream Chaser vehicle servicing those expandable modules. And they're hoping to get that together by about, uh, I believe the target date uh, Janet Kambandi said was somewhere around 2026, 2027 to have the first of those modules up and uh, up and going. So, um, it, we may not have a NASA run space station, but we will have a U.S. you know co corporate presence on uh, in in low Earth orbit, and there are two companies out there trying to do just that. Um, if if anybody has anything to add, um, you know, in this because this is really a sticky wicket, and it's going to be interesting to see not only um it, it, how how first off this this booster soap opera plays out, but also how it brings to light some things, too, that, that the international community is going to have to take a look at. Well, and then also keep in mind, Russia has said that it's leaving the International Space Station um, 2025. Now, I don't know how much they stick to that, and I don't know, um, you know how set in stone that is. Um, there's always talk of, of when, you know, when does the international civil space cooperation uh, partnership that that currently supports international space station. There's always questions about when that will end. But Russia has said that they do plan to leave the space station on 2025. The U.S. Um, has indicated its commitment towards um, 2028, which is right now sort of end of the operational time frame. But again, as you just said, there's commercial part, commercial uh, partners who are, are certainly interested in maintaining and keeping the International Space Station in orbit and in use. Yeah, I mean, the um, I, when you're talking about Russia, then it's not the first time the Russians have had this, you know, for lack of a better phrase, a temper tantrum before. I mean, I think it was um, Sawyer, if, if you recall, I, because I think you were there too, 
at Space Fest 6, and I'm trying to remember what the timeline was, was uh, there was some talk of, of Russia leaving the uh, partnership back then. In fact, uh, uh, Anatoly Zak, who uh, writes a, a grand blog on, on the, uh, the Russian space program, uh, was there making a presentation on several uh, ambitious plans the Russians had then. And I remember turning to a couple of people that, that I was with, and I remember saying, okay, fine, but how are you going to pay for all this? And that's, again, my question to the the Russians again, how are you going to pay for all this? Because I don't I, I don't think that their program is, is as robust from a financial standpoint as, um, as ours is. All right, so switching from China back to the United States, and in fact from CNSA to NASA, uh, we now officially have a new head of NASA. NASA's 14th administrator, official administrator, I should say, is now Bill Nelson. We had talked about it being a possibility, but he was officially sworn in on May 3rd, 2021. And uh, there was some history in the making at his swearing in, or at least it's felt historic. Yeah, so I thought it was kind of interesting in that, uh, well, today, I, and I didn't know know this, um, NASA's uh, director over at uh, the Kennedy Space Center, Bob Cabana, who was presenting at a uh, um, CIR Nevada event, um, for those who don't know, Sierra Nevada just got the authorization from Space Florida to go ahead and land uh, their CRS-2 contract uh, Dream Chasers at the um, what was the shuttle landing facility. Now I believe the new name for it is the Launch and Landing Facility. Um, and they just announced that today along with, uh, and they had uh, uh, Bob Cabana, Janet Cavandi, and uh, a gentleman from uh, ULA, I believe, um, over there as well, whose name escapes me, and I do apologize for that. Bob Cabana mentioned that um, both uh, Charlie Bolden and uh, uh, Jim Bridenstine were in attendance uh, at the swearing-in of uh, Bill Nelson, and that basically shows some continuity between you know the past administrators and and here and here um, the the now current administrator. So it, it shows that you know, the past two have, have really got a lot of faith in the individual that's going to be uh, up there on on the ninth floor over at headquarters and. Uh, Bob Cabana too basically said he was excited to to have to work with uh, uh, Bill Nelson in this capacity. He said he had worked with him when he was in, in uh, a senator, and, and they always had a great relationship. And uh, uh, he was really, really looking forward to uh, to working with Bill Nelson in his new role as NASA administrator. So. Uh, it, Cabana went ahead and said said something to the effect that he was very very you know really really happy for the agency at this point because he thinks the you know, the agency is going to be in great hands going forward. So um, one of the things I'll I'll mention because I, I was sort of listening to the uh, confirmation hearing uh, that occurred you know long before the the swearing in. Obviously um, there was a whole. 
there's a whole process that that uh, a nominee has to go through, and it's uh, you know, having to talk in front of Congress and you know to, and, and the uh, the uh, Senate committee uh, for uh, science and for science and commerce, and uh, th- which I believe was a committee that Nelson had once chaired himself. So it was it was sort of you know welcome home if you will but it the the the, the seats were, were changed a little bit um one of the the thing just the observations you would think that that nasa does nothing more than stem outreach because that's what it, where a lot of the questions were were coming from as far as what their 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 stem outreach was now that's a critical mission on nasa's part but it's not their only one and you know we still really didn't get a lot of insight from that as to how bill nelson would really really run the agency so um but i'm i'm a little more confident in hearing you know uh, bob cabana's words again uh, about uh about uh, uh bill nelson i think too that uh, jim bridenstine has also endorsed uh his uh, well, when he was a nominee, he, he heartily endorsed uh, Bill Nelson. And to be honest with you, this was a gentleman that has uh, how many you know years in Congress. He knows where the levers are in Washington. He knows what buttons to push, and and uh, uh, I think he could probably get a heck of a lot done. It was the same thing with um, you know, coming from the same Jim Bridenstine you know, mold, if you will. We had reservations here on this program. We thought maybe you know, a politician was not the right person for NASA. But Bill Nelson, uh, but uh, Jim Bridenstine looked at, at the mission as you know a recovering politician, if you will. And he he was one to reach across the aisle and and just get things done and and Bill Nelson I think needs to go into the, that same direction and I think he will I think he's going to go ahead and become that quote recovering politician if you will um, in the same mold as as Jim Bridenstine did and and reach across the aisle and try to get things done on on behalf of the agency. Uh, so I think the agency going forward is in pretty good hands, despite every you know. If 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 you listen to some of the static that was going on on social media, you know how he was just going to go ahead and kill all the commercial aspects of that and all that. I didn't get that impression at all. So I think people need to cool their jets on that. Um, I think Bill Nelson is really going to try to 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 move a lot of that forward because, quite frankly, that paradigm's been working. Um, so I'm looking forward to some big things from from uh, from from Mr. Nelson uh, with reference to his governorship on on NASA. I think it's in great hands at this point. Um, time will tell if I'm right. Uh, but uh, if he follows the same trail that Jim Bridenstine followed, and that is saying that he's a recovering politician and now he's he's fully immersed himself in, into this this world of, of space flight and is, is going to be its biggest champion and its biggest cheerleader, then I don't think, I, I think the agency is going to do just fine. So I think um, Bill Nelson was an excellent choice, but I have to admit, I was given many of the historic and fantastic choices the Biden administration has made for other positions. It was really disappointing to see another guy in this position. There were a lot of 
well-qualified women with the same sort of chops who could have done very well. So I will say that personally, I was disappointed to see um, sort of the safe decision made. But again, I, I have no no doubt that uh, that Bill Nelson would do a fantastic job as NASA administrator. Really excited to see Pam Melroy um, nominated. But, you know, there, there was a whole list of, of very well-qualified women that um, that could have done a good job, and I'll have to admit that I'm I'm really disappointed I didn't get to see Vice President Harris swear in uh, the first woman NASA administrator. Actually, Pam Melroy was one of those names that I thought might have been uh, might have uh, been been selected for the top top job. Uh, uh, Ellen Stofan was another, and I don't. I, I, Davin Newman was on that list. Yeah, you know, there's exactly. there were a lot of. There are a lot of people who who uh, really could have done a great job. Not that I don't think Bill Nelson will do a good job. I think that um, you know Florida politicians are always involved in space, so this isn't you know a new rodeo for him. Um, but you know, I, I I just have to say that I was a little disappointed with that, and I certainly know that I was not alone in that disappointment. I've had a few conversations about it. I mean, even Wayne Hale had said you know that uh, it was it was about time for for. Uh for a woman, uh, to be at the helm, um, of, uh, of the, uh, of the agency. Uh, and Kat, I have to agree with you. There were a lot of good women out there that could have fit the bill. Um, but unfortunately, unfortunately the, the, the administration decided to go a, a different route and, and here we are. Um, I will say though, that, that Bill Nelson and, uh, the president are, extraordinarily good and close friends so hopefully that also will reflect uh the amount of cooperation uh he'll receive from the white house whether that's going to be reflective in in future budgets that remains to be seen but uh but i think the the friendship between the two individuals is is going to to go go the distance you know with with trying to to get things done. I agree. It is definitely the safe choice to go with. Uh, doesn't necessarily mean a bad choice, but it is definitely the safe choice. And again, the fact that you've got, you know, the backing from Jim Bridenstine and that Charlie Bolden's there also showing support. I mean, that shows that you've got three generations now of NASA administrators in one location, whether it be in person or virtually. Uh, essentially trying to continue to pass the baton along. Whether the budget gets passed along with that baton is another question, but uh, I have a feeling that while, yes, it would be very nice to finally see some diversity at the helm, he they went with the safe guarantee we can get this through. He'll know basically what to do because he's been in politics for so long. He's dealt with NASA in his district for so long that he'll be able to take it in whatever direction Congress chooses. Yeah, agreed, Sawyer. There, there's, uh, I, I, I couldn't have put it any better. Speaking of uh, NASA and what Congress chooses, let's move on to probably the most uh, controversial topic of the last two weeks or so, and that is the uh, Human Landing System, HLS uh award, shall we say, uh, that was given to uh, one of three possible choices for a lunar lander. And yes, you heard right, 
one of three possible choices as opposed to two. Originally, the understanding was that it was due to budgetary constraints and that at one point they were not able to afford any of the three options until SpaceX, who ended up getting the contract with their Starship, lowered their prices down. So there is a lot to unpack here. I'm not even sure where we want to begin with this. Maybe let's uh, go with where things are now and how we got to this point. Gene, you want to start us off? Boy, Sawyer, that, that's that's a... I mean, the, the, to try to go ahead and peel back the onion on this is just... It, I mean, I, I, I want to... As I said during pre-show, I really wish I had a, a an old 1950s soap opera organ to start this off because it has just turned into that kind of, kind of thing. First, um, Stephen Jerzyk back in April of 2020, I believe the, the uh, source selection statement came out on April 28th of 2020, mm-hmm. uh, basically selected three companies of, uh, you know, they, they, to go ahead and compete to build the, uh, the lunar lander for the Artemis program. Um, those companies were uh, Dianetics, Blue Origin and SpaceX. That was not in any particular order. Just you know, saying saying that um, Blue Origin had its entry with with a uh, a group of other companies: Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman, Draper Labs, who was going to write the software on this one. Uh, Draper was also responsible for writing a lot of the software for the original lunar module that got us to the moon with Apollo. Uh, so that was, and they had their own own uh, uh, vehicle. Uh, the Dianetics vehicle, um, of course, was a little different. Um, I thought was, you know, I, I, you know, a personal note here, I thought the Dianetics vehicle was, was not bad, um, to be blunt. Um, and then, of course, the the, uh, the last entry, uh, SpaceX, with their Starship implementation. Now, back then, um, they were rated. Um, SpaceX um, got their ratings in as acceptable in two categories: one technical and one management. They were both rated acceptable. Um, Blue Origin. And their entry was the rated acceptable on on the technical side, and um, very good on their management side. And the Dianetics vehicle, uh, as submitted, was rated very good on both technical merit and management. Now, fast forward a year later um, to April sixteenth. Um, when the second source selection came out and Sawyer, as you sort of kind of set the stage for this one, uh, it appeared that Congress did not fund the HLS program the way it really should have. Uh, I believe that the, and and somebody out there is, is, is going to be a little bit more smarter than I am, but they, they really were, were, were shortchanged, you know, to the tune of, of, you know, billions of dollars on, on the, um, on the HLS contract. So they didn't even, so NASA did not 
have the ability to even select one of these these players. Um, they went ahead and set it up, set their um, uh, proposals up and so on, and did all the work. And the ratings came out on the um, April 16th, 2021 source selection um, in the following following manner. Blue Origin was, was deemed to be acceptable in their technical... Um, their technical um, rating. Um, okay, I'm reading from the wrong one. Give me about two seconds here. Here we go. Blue Origin was still given a an acceptable and um, and a very good in in their management. Um, Dianetics was dropped down to marginal in their technical rating and very good. And SpaceX maintained an acceptable rating for their on the technical side, an outstanding rating for management. So I'm I'm kind of wondering, a what happened with that, in that you know they were only deemed to be acceptable in their management style a year ago, and now they've you know been deemed to have an outstanding rating in in their in their management here now so i'm kind of wondering what happened there but um anyway um my initial thought was wait a minute i thought the whole idea of the commercial lander paradigm was to select two players and the agency didn't have the money to even select one, but they went ahead and went with, you know, for, for lack of a better phrase, they went with the devil they knew, which was, which was SpaceX, um, rather than, you know, any of the two other devils that they didn't know. Um, although, uh, you know, NASA had a, a good working relationship with, um, Northrop Grumman and with, um, you know, Lockheed Martin, they have been in various other projects, um, and they were part of the Blue Origin series, and um, Dianetics has contracts with SLS and a few other, uh, a few other NASA projects, so that they've worked with them before as well. So I'm, I'm kind of wondering what happened between that. Um, but also, again, what happened with, with, with the redundancy part of it? Because it has already seen, you know, advantages to that. We've seen that in the commercial cargo program, you know, when, uh, you know, when uh, back then when Orbital Sciences stumbled uh, in October of 2014, SpaceX picked up. Redundancy is, is, you know, in space, we know how important redundancy is. I think sort of to say like what happened, what happened was budget, right? Budget and then um, I don't know why there was, there was sort of like a, a rush to make this decision. It felt like, I don't know if this is true, but this is just in watching. Um, typically when you have large contracts like this and you're having a handover administration, 
um, you would see that wait until the handover of the administration happened. So from, you know, waiting until Bill Nelson was confirmed and sort of could put insight on this. That didn't happen in this case, which is, um, you know, it's not like a, a regulation that, that you have to wait for the, the administration. There are things that you can't. But that was just sort of, you know, a few raised eyebrows is why did this process feel rushed? It also came out that when um, it was clear that HLS would not be funded at the request, that um, they went back to SpaceX and asked them, like, hey, can you modify your, your proposal, modify your offer? And uh, they didn't offer that to the other two um to competitors. So it wasn't offered to Dynetics, it wasn't offered to Blue Origin. So that actually forms the basis of um, some of their complaints with the GAO. You know, both Blue Origin and Dynetics have, have filed um, a complaint with GAO, which is the Government Accountability Office, um, alleging irregularities in the selection process and that it wasn't fair. Uh, because of that, uh, NASA has suspended its contract with um, uh, with SpaceX pending further review, as, as we've mentioned, um, I think we mentioned, if not, NASA has suspended its contract pending further review um, and the outcome of the GAO report. And I will say that this is this is not uncommon. uncommon. When you have government bids, especially at this amount of money, it doesn't matter if it's NASA, DOD, Health and Human Services, whatever department or, or agency it is, uh, there's often... Um, complaints filed with GAO. They don't always stop the process. It really just depends on the nature of those complaints. I think um, sort of the revelation that that the government had gone back to SpaceX and asked them to sort of um, adjust their offer and not offer that same opportunity to the other competitors certainly um, is one factor that's going to that's going to be looked at closely by the GAO. Also. I do want to mention, um, you know, there's been a lot of posturing, you know, about from from the various companies about this. Uh, SpaceX has had some comments in terms of, of how they feel or, you know, SpaceX leadership has had some comments on this. Just as a reminder, the SpaceX, you know, sued the Air Force over a similar contract um, when ULA was a- awarded an 11 billion sole provider contract back in uh, over a decade ago now. Uh, That eventually ended up settling with SpaceX, um, getting some guarantee of some launches and a promise from the Air Force to speed up its certification process. Uh, SpaceX is currently involved in another lawsuit against the Air Force um, over launch contracts as well, and has decided to continue its lawsuit trying to use um, some of this as, as as um, fodder for that. So just to be aware that this is a normal thing that happens. Companies, um, when they're not successful, do use different legal means in order to try um, to continue to compete for contracts. So um, I'm I'm of the mind that redundancy is good. If there's a way to, to fund two companies, we should. Also, we should remember that like, with or without this money, at least when it comes to SpaceX and Blue Origin, they're funded by billionaires who who have the ability to do some of this um, this development without investment from either private investors or governments. Um, so I do always say, just like to remind that, 
And then just remind that even though that these companies, especially in the in the space of in, in the case of SpaceX, that SpaceX has received a phenomenal amount of government support and would not exist at the level it does today without that level of government support, both through commercial cargo, commercial crew, and other things. So when you know when I like to remind taxpayers, especially US taxpayers, when you watch a SpaceX launch, you paid for that launch, not just for the the launch that the government bought from SpaceX, but you paid for the development of that rocket and that program. So I also just like to remind people of that because we think of them as private companies, but you know, they do receive a significant funding from from the taxpayer through through government contracts. I'm glad you mentioned that, Kat, because again, the the past few well, last year and and so far even this year, the uh, the launch manifest for for SpaceX seems to be you know a ton of Starlink launches, which is their own venture, and of course the uh, the commercial crew and commercial cargo launches. I have not seen at least in the past uh, the past year a lot of well commercial business out of SpaceX. When you know in past years there was a ton, and that was one of the things that a lot of the uh, you know, dare I say, a lot of the fanboys uh, were always touting that, yeah, look at all the commercial business SpaceX is getting. What 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 have the other guys been getting? Well, you know, Ariane Space has been getting a lot of commercial business, too. Um, I mean, grant you, uh, ULA has been, um, they've had some, but not as much as, as SpaceX has had in the past. This has to do with pandemic, right? Not everyone right, right. has the funds available to launch. But you know, this it's it's a good point. You know, um I, we were having a conversation over on Clubhouse um uh in the small steps and giant leaps group. And uh this is one thing that Chris Johnson um pointed out when we were having this discussion is that his concern when it comes to SpaceX is is there a point at which you become spread too thin? Right? Yep, yep. Because you know now you're doing commercial launches, you have your Starlink program, you have commercial crew, there's still a commercial cargo program, you want to go to Mars, and now you're also landing on the moon? Like, that's a lot for any company to to manage. Um, and that's a huge portfolio with a lot of risk. Um, so even with the funding that they, that they could receive from the federal government in, in the terms of billions of dollars, Space is incredibly expensive. Billions of dollars in space is not that much money. That's like buying a house, right? Like yeah, yeah. One house is a billion dollars in space. Uh, and actually probably one house would be like 10, 15 billion dollars. So like while to the average listener who doesn't deal in government budgets, like billions sounds like a lot of money, it's not really. And especially in terms of all that SpaceX is doing. Um, so there's also a concern is, is, is there a point that you see SpaceX spreading itself too broad and too wide, and then you lose some of that risk management or attention to detail that is just so important, especially when you're launching humans somewhere? Yeah, Kat, just to kind of reinforce what you were saying, I'm looking at a Space News article right now by Jeff Faust that's uh, dated uh, April 30th, and this is about the Dianetics protest, and it's one of the things that Dianetics 
um, also claimed NASA overlooked was weaknesses in the SpaceX proposal. To quote the, the article, quote, NASA failed to consider the risks inherent in SpaceX's technical approach, and more specifically, information too close at hand for NASA to ignore, i.e. that four SpaceX starships have exploded at various stages of their test flights in the recent months. NASA has given SpaceX a pass on its demonstrable lack of such systems engineering, close quote. So, um, are we at the point where, where they may be spread too thin, do you think? So, I mean, I don't know that, that we can say that we're at that point right at this moment. But I can certainly say that, you know, sort of comparing Starship right now to what, like, a Starship lander for the moon is going to look like is a very hard thing to do, right? Because the Starship development so far has felt more like an Elon Musk pet project than actually something that's going to get off the ground anytime soon that I would ever trust putting a human on. Um, not to say that it doesn't get there, you know, that that doesn't happen, but it hasn't resembled the sort of testing um, and and engineering that you would expect for a program that is going to be trusted to safely get humans to land on the moon, right? Like it doesn't, it doesn't, it sort of resist, it sort of resembles more the the cowboy days of of space exploration when you know you we were blowing up rockets all the time and, and test things. And you know, although like SpaceX has blown up, you know, a rocket or two, as have other companies, we, we really don't see that that much anymore in test flights, right? Because there's so much testing that's done prior to having a complete vehicle. We have static test fires, we go, you know, We've seen this in, in with the development of SLS, right? You take those engines to Stennis and a rocket test stand and you fire them up and you sort of, you do as much testing prior so that when you have the first launch of a new vehicle, you, you don't see sort of fiery explosions. Um, so that we've seen that with Starship a lot. And a lot of that is just, you know, every, every test vehicle is not a cheap article, right? That's not something that, you know, and they said they're doing this because they're learning from each thing and they, you know, and SpaceX obviously believes it has a business case for for it for blowing up multiple large rockets and landers all the time. But it's not something that we typically see in, in development these days just because of the advances in engineering we have in in the ability to test components separately before they're put together to fly. Um, so, you know, I certainly think that they have a point, whether it's a point that's going to carry I, I couldn't say, but I certainly, you know, the the way that you see this testing for Starship carried out, as opposed to the way that we see, you know, testing for SLS, which of course SLS has its own problems, or ULA's testing for, say, Vulcan, is is much different than um, than the norm for testing currently. Again, not not saying that it's bad or good, just pointing out that um, this is not the typical type. Of, of testing we see today. Yeah, Kat, I have to agree with you. Even, um, uh, sorry, I don't know if you were you were listening uh, to the uh, Crew 2 um, post-launch, but it kind of uh, turned into a moratorium on Starship. Uh, Elon Musk was on the dais, and he had indicated, too, that, yeah, we got to stop blowing things up. 
uh, and and really kind of you know dig in and and get the, these things to work. He's still holding. He still thinks that um, twenty twenty four is doable um, on his on, on on his watch. In fact, he's he's thinking even earlier is doable. Um, of course, we we know the differences between reality and Elon time. Um, I, I think personally, uh, 2020, 2024 at this point, uh, for delivery on a, on, on, on Starship is, is, is a pipe dream because not only of, you know, the, the complexities of the craft, but also now you've got the, the freeze and the last freeze, um, lasted about five months. Um, and that was, uh, I believe, 2014 into 2015 when the uh, commercial crew uh, vehicles were selected and, and uh, SNC kind of uh, threw a monkey wrench into the whole thing and protested the, uh, the selection process. And, of course, you had the GAO uh, going in there again, being arbiter of the whole thing. And finally, the thing was settled and, and we w- people went back to work. Um, and for just for references, the uh, commercial crew uh, vehicles were about 37 months behind. And these are far less complicated vehicles than, you know, a lunar lander would be. So um, just, you know, kind of throwing that out there. And as, as a reminder, uh, you know, we're, we're not talking about something, you know, we're not talking about a capsule here. We're talking about about a far more complex vehicle that, that that has to go ahead and work in an extraordinarily demanding environment. Not that you know Earth orbit is isn't demanding. This is even going to be more so because now you're landing on another another world, and that's what this vehicle is going to have to accomplish. Um, what do I think is is going to happen here? Who knows? I think there's going to be. Um, uh, this is going to be, I guess, the first um, kettle of fish that Bill Nelson is going to have to tackle and uh, and and deal with. Um, I will say this: uh, I'm I'm going to also throw the 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 you know the the dirty light, if you will, on Congress here for not funding this whole thing properly. Uh, it was the same kind of problem. That the uh, the commercial crew vehicles ran into, the commercial cargo vehicles ran into, Congress just didn't believe in the paradigm, and and you would think that after the success of commercial cargo, after the success of commercial crew, uh, thus far, um, Congress would kind of understand why you need two you know, two runners in this race. Unfortunately, and. You know, for Congress, I I totally understand, like, you know, where they were coming from from this. You have to remember Congress has, you know, recently, this may be a a re-election decision more so than a not willing to fund decision. Um, Congress has just recently, you know, in the last year passed how many huge, large ticket spending items because of the pandemic. So, you know, the being able to justify spending is is always an issue. Um, And the other thing that, you know, we've talked about this before, 
is that NASA's budget has to be reauthorized each year. This makes long-term projects can be really difficult, right? Because you have to build like a really large consensus to fund them at a large level. Um, there are a lot of reasons that SLS is still, still a thing. Um, and some of that has to do with sort of Congress caretaking a program that it likes because it brings money to their districts. Um, and th there's other reasons, of course, and, and, and having that heavy lift rocket, um, you know, that that's a civil um, handled and managed and, and built by by NASA. You know, there, there's arguments for that. There's arguments against it, et cetera. But, you know, Congress just NASA isn't their only priority. Sometimes, you know, we get lost in our space policy world and we're like, of course they should fund this. It's obvious it's going to have huge impact. There's tons of economic research out there that shows that when we invest in the space program, you know, we're really investing in our economy. That money comes back, um, you know, anywhere estimates, anywhere from seven to $14 for each dollar spent on NASA goes back into the economy. Um, we we make a ton of money on return on investment for money spent on space, not just NASA, but also across defense space and commercial space. Um, but, you know, a lot of times politicians are short-sighted and they're thinking about what, what wins me my next election, right? And does giving NASA an extra few billion dollars necessarily win me my next election when we just signed a trillion dollar bill? You know, so I think sometimes that those those types of considerations come in and not necessarily the the obvious like look commercial having commercial programs works, having redundancy in commercial programs works. So just, you know, politicians are balancing multiple priorities. Well, I'll 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 throw two things at you know, to to add just two logs to that fire. Um Jose Soriano, who is no longer in Congress now, but he was of the opinion that um, you know the, the the 2024 date was you know sort of set there arbitrarily as far as a political agenda. There, that was one. He is no longer in office. Bernice Johnson, who I believe is the uh, the chair of the um, House uh, Science and Technology Committee, also did not like this selection and said so. Um, and I believe she's kind of a believer in, in she would like to see the old paradigm out there, basically that, you know, the, the, the government would own the vehicle, not, uh, um, you know, why should the U.S. taxpayer go ahead and fund a, a vehicle that the U.S. taxpayer doesn't own? And I think that that's, that's her uh, way of thinking. And why should the U.S. taxpayer not only just fund one vehicle, but two vehicles that eventually it will not own? And um, I, I think that's what where, where she was coming from. Uh, so uh, and I believe also you know, Kendra Horn, who, who was in there um, before her, her also on, on that side, um, she was kind of leaning toward the same thing where – uh, she didn't really like that that kind of paradigm at all. Uh, so I think there was a lot of hostility toward the fact that he, why is the U.S. taxpayer dueling out the money for um, a lunar lander for two companies where the U.S. taxpayer ultimately will not own that lander and it will just, you know, they'll just, will then have to pay these two companies for services and the fact that um, a commercial uh, 
need, if you will, for a human landing system, the argument for a commercial lunar landing system was really not made uh, to them anyway. Uh, and I think that that's also part of the problem here. Um, so I'm, I'm still going to say that, that Congress is part of the problem. Hopefully they can be part of the solution. Um, and uh, we'll, we'll just see how this entire soap opera pans out because, again, this is going to be one of the first things that, uh, that Bill Nelson's going to have to deal with um, when he... Uh, when he gets gets to his desk and really starts rolling up his sleeves and, and working on this, um, I don't know what NASA's role will be in the arbitration thing. I think it just sort of sits there and, excuse me, watches what happens with the you know with the GAO. And I think it's it may all be in the GAO's hands right now or the Government Accounting, accounting Office. Um, it may all be in their hands at this point, and NASA just has to, has to wait for arbitration to be finished. I don't think we're done with this topic anytime soon. There is oh, still no. <laughs> so much that's oh, going to no. develop with this. I mean, heck, from the time that we started discussing this episode a week ago until now, we've already had five or six different developments and twists and turns and pauses and pushbacks. And I mean, I, I have a feeling at some point we're going to end up seeing two different craft competing, private craft competing for this lunar contract. I'm not sure if they're going to need to create a different program for it, which is an idea that I know has been discussed of a post-HLS program in a way to allow for a second competitor to get in or whether they're going to allow a second competitor as is. I have a feeling we're going to end up seeing two and it's going to happen sooner than later. Well, Sawyer, again, on that same line that you mentioned, there's probably going to be two and there may be another call uh, back on April 28th. Uh, and I'm looking at a, um, uh, a an RFI called Enabling Industry Readiness for Commercial Lunar Transportation Space Systems. Um, this was issued by NASA and it was an RFI or a uh, request for information. Now, um, I believe um, Kathy Leaders during the press conference uh, in the event basically said that, well, this is just the first wave, you know, this is just for the first, uh, the first landing, you know, we're going to put out a new contract for, um, you know, follow-up landers and so on. Um, the uh, uh, Michael Sheets, who's with CNBC, posted this basically saying, "Well, here it is. Here's the here's the contract proposal." No, it's not. <laughs> There's a difference between an RFI and an RFP. An RFI is request for information. It's NASA going out to industry and saying, "Okay, let's see what you got." Um, the RFP is request for proposal. That means there's a contract in 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 the mix here. Um, but again, it, to, to read um, this, this RFI, it basically says, um, you know, it, it, it is calling out for another kind of look-see to see what, what industry has got. Um, and, uh, you know, the, this, this story is far from over, and the, the waters are just going to continually get muddy until... Until you know, either the GAO makes its call, or 
you know, does the whole thing, you know, go back to, to square one? I don't know. So let's just, you know, this is something, Sawyer, that, that I think all of us on this program are going to keep an eye on. I know, Kat, you're going to be watching this kind of like a hawk. I know I'm going to be watching this like a hawk, and we're going to continue the conversation as we as we go forward. But it's this conversation is far from over. And the, the, the more we talk and the more we're kind of stuck in, in, in trying to figure out what's going on from a from from a legal legal standpoint and 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 trying to to get you know at least one of one of these the, these projects started the 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 clock's ticking and uh i think the big loser here i think first off i think we we all know that the 2024 is probably a pipe dream for artemis um getting getting to the lunar surface at this point but but every time the clock Every time something like this happens, the clock ticks, and uh, it, it's just you know kind of pushing that 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 landing date further to the right. So uh, the the sooner we can get all of this fixed, the sooner we can get on with with the mission. And uh, at this juncture, I really don't have you know, a horse in the race as far as um, who I think should win this thing. I'm not an engineer. I don't even play one here. <laughs> um, but uh, I, I, I do understand a little bit about it. And um, uh, we're going to be watching that whole, the whole engineering aspects of it. We're going to be watching the political aspects of it. And, and we're just going to try to bring the whole story to you the best we can. Exactly. And of course, we are always open to comments, criticisms, concerns, most things beginning with the letter C. You can always tweet them at us at Talking Space. Does that include cash? Because you can totally send us cash. I'd be all right with that, too. (laughs) Oh, please. Yeah. (laughs) By all means. Um. (laughs) Yes, all of those. Um, Anyway, you can reach out to any of us individually on our Twitter accounts, uh, as well as the at Talking Space account, Talking Space on Facebook as well, and most social media platforms. Uh, so feel free to reach out with your ideas and comments and thoughts on it. Cause this is, uh, certainly a discussion that we'd love to continue to have with the community. Uh, now two quick things before we wrap up tonight. One, we have to give a shout out to the Ingenuity helicopter, which, uh, as we've mentioned previously was about to fly. It has certainly flown above and beyond in more ways than one at this point, including now getting a new role. Yep. It will now, it, it, and, and this was kind of funny. And um, when it happened, because uh, about twenty-four hours before the announcement was made, I was actually talking with someone on 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 Twitter. I forget what what handle they use. Forgive me, but this individual basically said, "Why don't we just go ahead and use Ingenuity as a, a essentially as a scout?" you know, for, for perseverance, try to go ahead and, and scout out where, where perseverance was, was, was going to go next. And I said, well, we didn't know how long the, the thing would last and how long the helicopter would last. I know the legs are only good for about maybe 100 landings or, or, or something, according to, uh, 
the press conferences and so on. Well, lo and behold, guess what happens the next day? Um, Mimi Ong gets up there on the dais over at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory and says, guess what? We are going to use Ingenuity as a scout. That means it does, it's not going to go ahead and fly as often as uh, they, they had first predicted, but it means now it is going to be working hand-in-hand -hand with the Perseverance rover team in selecting where the rover is going to go. Uh, so it's, you know, it, this is basically the, 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 the underpinnings of what they were hoping the helicopter would, would, would go off and do. You know, to, to be um, sort of a, a scout, if you will, to help not only future rovers, but even um, with with human expeditions, to go out there and scout out what where to go, what to see, what to avoid, um, if there's any kind of, you know, problems with terrain and so on and so forth. So it, it's kind of exciting to see the, the Ingenuity team taking point, if you will, for the, the Perseverance rover. So it, no, both, both robots now are going to be working hand in hand. That's really exciting stuff. Exactly. And then uh, one more item before we go, and unfortunately this is on a little bit of a sadder note, that uh, we have lost another one of the greats of the Apollo era and uh, Mike Collins, who you may know best as the command module pilot on Apollo 11. And, uh, yes, he was on top of that. He did a lot of amazing work, a lot of amazing art as well. And uh, he will absolutely be missed, but his accomplishments will not be forgotten. Not at all. This one hit me hard um, because he was such an approachable individual on Twitter um, as well in his later years. And uh, he had this this hashtag world out my window because it, it, it kind of went back to his days uh, when he was the uh, Apollo 11 uh, CM uh, command module pilot and was just looking at, at the world you know from his window and he you know one of the things that he would he would often ask is you know why don't you go ahead and show me what the world outside your window looks like and so on and I would you know, throw photographs of wherever I, wherever I was at the time and, and, and so, and see it. And he'd, you know, either RT it or, or, you know, put a light down or something like that. And, you know, here you are, you're communicating with somebody, you know, who has, it's, has such historic significance. And, you know, you're talking to him as though, you know, he was just, you know, one of your, 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 your Twitter followers. Um, one of the things that he did say about Apollo 11 as well, Neil Armstrong liked to say that, that he, um, Mike Collins and, and Buzz Aldrin were the tip of the spear. Mike Collins liked to say that you know, we were just part of a very delicate daisy chain of individuals of over 400,000 Americans who got us to the moon and most of them didn't get the credit that they deserved. And, and that said something to, to you too about the humility of the man and um, what he felt his, his role was on, on Apollo 11. 
he was also the individual that designed the uh, the crew patch. And uh, if you'll note, it's one of the, um, I think it might be the uh, only Apollo, Apollo crew, crew patch without the names. And he felt that that was an immaterial thing. Um, he felt that the names were immaterial, that the patch should represent everyone that, that, that worked on that flight and on, on the program. And he thought that, that their names were, you know, not exactly part of the, they were just part of the plan, if you will. And, um, if you, uh, you have to read his memoir, uh, Carrying the Fire. And, uh, I immediately thought of that, that title and, um, it's probably one of the best, if not the best, astronaut memoir going. In fact, I'm I'm rereading that right now just just to get myself comfortable with it again. But um, we're going to have to carry the fire now. He has passed it to us, and uh, we're going to have to carry it further than 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 he was allowed to. And I think maybe that's the best thing to to leave. Uh, leave this this little epitaph with, but uh, again, an incredible human being. The, the the we're diminished by his loss. I wish his family all the best um, during the hard time. And to Mike Collins, um, good tailwinds, um, and we will miss you dearly. Well said. And on that note, I think that brings this extra long, already long, into even longer episode to its conclusion. I'd like to thank everybody who joined us here tonight. Thank you for joining us, Gene McCulka. Thank you, Sawyer, and to everybody out there, thanks for listening. I know we go super long these days, but uh, um, I think it's it's worth the listen, and, and I hope you're, you're learning much uh, from the conversation. And please, you know, if you hear something uh, that we've said here, you know, please go ahead, you know, find us on Twitter. I'm GeneJM29. Um, or, or shout out at the, uh, the talking space, um, Twitter account at talking space and, you know, poke a stick in our cage, tell us where we're wrong. Or if you agree with something, tell us we're right. We're really looking forward to hearing from you. And we'll, if I get anything really, really cool, I'll go ahead and share it here. Exactly. Yes. We we're kind of down to about one episode per month, but we like to keep them jam packed, maybe give you a couple listens out of it. Uh, give you a couple sittings to listen through it to get you through your day, your car drive, your commute, whatever. But we appreciate it. And thank you as well for joining us, Dr. Kat Robinson. Uh, always a pleasure to be here. Really excited to, to be able to chat space with all of you. And um, yeah, like like both Sawyer and Gina said, please reach out and, and talk to us. We love we love to hear what you have to say um, and send all those, all those C words to us. <laughs> Especially that cash. On that cosmic collision there, I'd like to thank everybody who joined us here tonight. Thank you for joining us at home. And as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be where you are. Uh-huh.